Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. I am Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. Apologize for the delay in getting this episode out. My oldest son was at a soccer tournament all day, so I've spent all day in the in the sun watching him play soccer, and I'm ready to record and hopefully release this episode tonight. I want to say thank you to all the listeners. I've been watching the analytics. It's kind of cool to see all of the places in which this episode is being downloaded. Looks like I've got downloads in now Brussels, Belgium still, uh, South Africa, Ireland, the UK, and all across the United States. So I appreciate all the listeners following along with the show. And if you haven't already done so, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Facebook page to get all the updates that you can. Uh, for more information, you can find the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, you can reach me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. And if you can, please support the show on Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making these free episodes of this podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. And then for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the podcast on any platform that you're listening to. It definitely helps expose the podcast out there to more listeners. And that's all I'm hoping to do is just grow this podcast. So without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. So this case is going to be probably not as long as the other cases I've done. Uh, I'm hoping to fill or to get this case completed and uh, the next case will be my first international case, which will bring me down to the land I grew up in, the uh, the land down under. Uh, it's a case out of Australia that I'm pretty excited to start researching. But first, let's get the case of Adrian Shelley. So if you're not aware, Adrian Shelley was a actor, writer, director that worked out of New York. And she died on November 1st, 2006 in the West Village in Manhattan, New York. So her name was actually Adrian Levine, but she went as Adrian Shelley. In most articles, I see her referred to as Shelley or Adrian Shelley, so I'm going to refer to her as Shelley just to keep this from becoming too confusing by changing through too many different names. Adrian Shelley was born on June 24, 1966 in Queens, New York. At age 10, she started training at Stage Door Manor Performing Arts Center, and she made her professional debut in a summer stock production of Annie. Now, when I read this, I wasn't exactly sure what a summer stock production was, so sometimes it's kind of fun in the research. I get to learn some things not related to true crime. So in this case, I figured if I was going to say a summer stock production of Annie, I better know what a summer stock is, or summer stock production is. So a summer stock production is a one-season show only in the summer, hence the name Summerstock, and it reuses stock scenery and costumes but changes up the play. So it's kind of a, a way for actors and actresses that are off for the summer, good for students, whether they be you know, elementary, middle, high school, or, or college students, to partake in some plays that, due to the fact they use the same scenery and the same costumes, don't require a large budget and they're often done in either public or open air open areas or potentially in things like barns or circus tents 
probably the most popular summer stock production that people would know would be something like Shakespeare in the Park. Back on track here, Adrian Shelley attends Boston University pursuing a degree in film production, but leaves before her senior year and moves to Manhattan. Uh, like all uh, aspiring actor, actors and actresses, uh, she's attending auditions and she lands the lead role in uh, the, the movies Unbelievable Truth in 1989 and Trust in 1990. And these are independent films but they're done by a man by the name of Hal Hartley, who is a very popular independent filmmaker. Uh, these, this is kind of her breakthrough, as both of these movies receive quite a bit of attention. This allows her to continue to land roles in small movies and on several TV shows. She uses this experience to write start writing and directing so in 1996 she writes directs and stars in the movie sudden manhattan and in 1999 she writes directs and stars in i'll take you there in 2001 she meets her husband andy ostroy via match.com which for me was a little interesting to read because whenever i see you know, actresses or actors, they're usually married to other actresses or actors, and I figured that they all meet at these award ceremonies or on the sets of these movies. So reading these two people involved, uh, her husband is going to be involved in the film industry as well. So just to me, I had a little bit of a chuckle when I realized two people in the movie industry are meeting on Match.com, just, I guess, like the rest of us regular folks, so... Shelley and Ostroy will be married in 2002, and they have a daughter in 2003. And while Shelley's pregnant with her daughter, she writes Waitress, a film she would later direct and act in with the starring role played by Carrie Russell. The film was quite a success, getting very positive reviews, winning several awards, and earning $22 million in the box office on a budget of only $1.5 million. Unfortunately, this film is going to debut three months after Adrian Shelley's death. We'll go to the day, back to the day of her death here. This is November 1st of 2006. We'll go through a short timeline here. On that day, Shelley's husband dropped her off at the Abingdon Square Apartments in Manhattan's West Village. So she's using these apartments as her office for her work. As I said, she's got a, a movie that's about to premiere in three months. I'm sure she's very busy with work in the in entertainment industry, and we'll find out later she's working on writing other things as well. Shelley's husband is going to become concerned that he hasn't heard from Shelley all day and asked a doorman to come up to the apartment with them. Now, when I first read this, I found this somewhat odd. I understand the idea that sometimes people get weird feelings or premonitions or whatever you want to call them, but if I haven't heard from my significant other all day, I could maybe assume that they're just busy or something came up and they had to run out of the office or something along those lines. I don't know that I would be grabbing somebody else to come up with me right away to check that apartment. I, you know, Maybe if the door was locked and I didn't have a key and I needed to get a doorman and maybe that was the case here and it was just reported kind of strangely that the husband grabbed the doorman just in case the door was locked. He didn't want to have to come back down and get the doorman, but it definitely 
is one of those things and there's a case that we might cover later on somewhere down the road where while watching a documentary on it I immediately knew something wasn't right because the husband called the police to check on his wife that he hadn't heard from in something like an hour or two while she was at home and it just seemed like one of those things where how would he know to contact the police before he ever even went into the house to find that his wife had been killed he called them from the driveway before ever going in the house and it's just one of those things that it doesn't seem like it would be normal behavior so again there might have been a valid reason for why the husband did what he did it just when i was reading it and said it was just something that stuck out in my head but regardless they're going to go up to the apartment find the front door unlocked they enter the apartment and adrian shelley is found deceased at 5:45 that afternoon and she's hanging from a shower rod in the bathroom with a bed sheet tied around her neck so initially police are going to arrive take one look at this crime scene and say clearly this this is a suicide so let's get into the investigation here as i said the new the nypd is going to look at this at first glance and say this is a suicide you've got a person who's in their place of employment or office or whatever you want to call it they're hanging from a towel rack with the sheet tied around their neck it's you know it's, it's, it's a hanging it's a suicide but shelly's husband is going to be adamant that this cannot be a suicide he explains to the police that she's got this successful career going she's got this movie coming out she's got a daughter that she absolutely loves and adores and would never leave and she has no history of depression and is not on any medications for depression and has not been depressed lately so it makes zero sense to her husband that she is going to kill herself and this goes back again we've talked about it a few times already in this podcast uh, series that even in this case where you're talking about a new york actress and i'm not saying it's she was so popular that everybody would know her walking down the street but still the police are walking in here they're taking one look at a and she's 40 years old this time so they're taking one look at a middle-aged woman who is found hanging from a bed sheet and she's the only one in the apartment they're going to jump to the conclusion that this is a suicide because they don't know her and they don't know her history and they they don't know her life story fortunately in this case the husband is there to say that's not the case and they're they're going to do an autopsy on adrian shelley and they're going to find that there's some other stuff going on here but the main clue they're going to discover is a very distinct reebok shoe print on the lid of the toilet next to the towel rack that adrian shelley was hanging from this is going to be important because adrian shelley is not wearing any shoes at the time she's found hanging i believe she was in socks so the police are going to have to surmise that it's not very common for somebody to climb onto the lid of a toilet let alone to do that in the rough proximity of time to somebody's hanging and even less common for that to not match up to the the footwear that the person who hung themselves is wearing 
So they're going to start canvassing the apartment to see if anybody heard anything. And this is just something common in investigations, especially in an apartment complex. People are going to sometimes hear things. And we talked about it in the case of the Lululemon murder. Sometimes people hear things that they perceive to be just a disturbance or an argument or something along those lines. And what they actually heard was a murder. So in this apartment, they're going to walk through and start knocking on doors to see if anybody heard a, a sounds of a struggle or an argument or anything like that at any point during the day on November 1st of 2006. While doing this canvassing, they're, act they're going to notice that several apartments appear to be under renovation and in the dust where these apartments are being renovated, there's a very clear distinct Reebok shoe print that matches the shoe print they see on the toilet lid. So now they changed their, their original viewpoint that this was a suicide to that this is a homicide and that the suspect was in both Adrian Shelley's apartment and these apartments that are being renovated. So they track down the company doing the renovations and they're going to identify the worker that was doing the renovations those days as 19-year-old Diego Pilco. Now, Pilco was an undocumented worker. He'd entered the country illegally from Ecuador approximately eight months prior to the murder. And he ended up getting a job with this company. They gave him an apartment to live in in the basement of one of their buildings. And he was working to pay off a $12,000 debt he owed the people who smuggled him into the country. And then whatever other money he was making, he was sending home to his family in Ecuador. So police are going to find Diego, and they're going to ask him what happened. His initial response is that he was working in an apartment below Adrian Shelley's office, and he was doing some hammering or some type of tool work that was loud, and Adrian Shelley came down and put her finger over her mouth to make the, the be quiet sign, and this upset him because he'd been working hard in this apartment, and so he threw his hammer at her. And I can't remember if it said that if he claimed that he hit her or just hit something near her, but she was obviously upset, called him a son of a bitch, and left and walked upstairs. Pilko is concerned at this point that she's going to contact the police because he threw the hammer at her and if the police are called out and they ask him for identification he's not going to have any identification because he's in the country illegally and that he could be deported and he would have no way to pay off this debt or send money back to his family so he claims he just he decides he's going to go try to make amends with this woman hopefully smoothing things over so that she doesn't contact the police he says he goes up to the apartment and knocks on the door and when she answers the door she slaps him at which point he punches her so hard that she falls to the ground and he believes that he's killed her with the punch. So he grabs her body and wraps the bed sheet around her neck and then hangs her from the towel rack to make it look like she had committed suicide. Now, Adrian Shelley was only about five foot two, 
but Diego Pilco is only about five foot three, so he's not much taller. So he, this is the reason he has to climb onto the toilet in order to reach the towel rack to tie her up there. Had he been taller, he might not have had to step on there, which would have never left the shoe print that ultimately led to him being identified as the killer. Now, police are going to take this story and compare it to the results of the autopsy, where they're going to find that there was no head trauma sustained, no nothing to indicate that Adrian Shelley would have sustained any type of damage that would have rendered her unconscious. So they're going to come back to Pioco and ask him to take a plea deal, but as a part of that plea deal, he had to confess and tell investigators what actually happened. Pioco, in his second confession, claims that he sees Adrian Shelley and thought she would be a good target for, in the articles it said robbery, but they later described that he tried to sneak into her apartment and take money out of her purse. Now this is something I hear mixed up regularly in many true crime podcasts, and it's just something that I want to clear up so that people have an understanding. There's a big difference between robbery and say burglary and theft, and people use them to mean the same crime sometimes, but they are very different. So just kind of on a, on a learning note here, if somebody says they are committing a robbery or have committed a robbery, that means they've taken an item of value from somebody else using force or threat of force. So if I walk into somebody's house with a gun and point the gun at them and tell them to give me all the money that they have, then I've committed a robbery, and in that case it would be a home invasion robbery. Or same thing at a store. If I walk into a gas station and hold a gun to the gas station attendant's head and say, give me all the money in the register, I have committed a robbery. However, if I enter into a building with the hope that I don't alert anybody inside that building and I try to steal something from that building, I'm committing a burglary. And it doesn't matter if I break and enter that building, if the building's unlocked, it just matters that I didn't have a reason to be in that building, uh, legal permission or anything along those lines, and I have now committed a crime, usually theft, while in that building. And then a theft is just simply the fact of taking something that belongs to another without their permission and with the intent to deprive them of that property. So while I read in there that he wanted to commit a robbery on her, but then later it said that he was hoping to sneak into her office and take money out of her purse without her seeing it, these are two different things. Now, at the point in which she notices him and catches him trying to steal stuff, it has turned from a burglary into a robbery because now he's going to use force to complete his crime. But sidebar done, we'll go back to what was going on here. So he claims in this second confession that while trying to take money out of her purse without her noticing, she does see him. She goes to scream and he reaches around, grabs her, covers her mouth and starts to squeeze on her neck at which point she eventually passes out and he believes he has strangled her to death so he still needs to stage 
the scene to look like a suicide, so he wraps the sheet around her neck and ties her up to the towel rack. Now, I did read somewhere else that it's highly likely that Pilko was going to sexually assault Adrian Shelley, and I couldn't find any evidence of that in the research where he admitted that to anyone or there was evidence of it in any way, but the fact that it was brought up tends to make a little more sense that once again, we're getting, we're getting a confession from Pilko, but we weren't there, there's no cameras, and all the evidence actually showed was that there was neck compression, and unfortunately the evidence also showed that Adrian Shelley was still alive when she was hung from that towel rack. So whatever Pilko did to her initially, for whatever reason that he did it to her, he actually didn't kill her. He likely just rendered her unconscious with a neck compression, and it was actually the act of tying her up to the towel rack is what killed him. Now, I did read that police were willing to take the plea as a manslaughter plea, and here's another thing that people don't always understand. So manslaughter is usually when a death occurs and there's some form of negligence on the part of the person who killed the other person. So the most common types of manslaughter are just cases of gross negligence. And this often happens with, say, firearms. If you're handling a firearm and it goes off, you didn't intend to kill the other person, but the bullet strikes them and kills them. It's, it's negligence, not intent, is usually where manslaughter comes into play. However, in this case, I don't think manslaughter fits because whichever action you put into place here whether it be the covering the mouth and compressing the neck until you believe that person is dead or hanging the person from the towel rack in such a way that they're going to suffocate. Both of these actions to me show intent to end the other person's life. And even his admittance that he was committing a burglary at the time that this happened most states have what we call felony murder, in which case if somebody dies during the commission of a felony, that is murder, regardless of who does the killing or how the person is killed. So it does seem strange that police were worried about losing a murder rap, or they they basically said that they didn't think Pilko would plea if it was a murder charge versus a manslaughter charge he was willing to take the manslaughter charge but not the murder charge but i can't imagine there wasn't enough evidence to prove that he ended adrian shelley's life with intent the only thing that i found in the research that i thought was going to make sense in this case was that the judge was willing to sentence Pilko to the maximum charge for the manslaughter, which was 25 years. And even if he had been convicted of, of a second-degree murder, it was one of those where the judge could still sentence him to 25 years, and with no criminal history and 
good behavior, there's a chance that he would be paroled around 25 years anyway. So it was one of those things where the charges maybe weren't accurate, but ultimately the sentencing was going to be the same. And this avoided a trial. So ultimately, Pioko was sentenced to 25 years without parole. The sentencing was in 2008, and he'd already served two years at that point. So I believe I read somewhere that he's going to be eligible for parole sometime, I want to say, in the next few years. But at the point that he's paroled or released from prison, he's going to be deported back to Ecuador. However, since he was 19 at the time of this crime in 2006, that would make him not even 40 years old around the time that he gets released so unfortunately there is the possibility that he has enough time to return back to the United States after the plea agreement and the sentencing Shelley's husband is going to file a lawsuit against the against Pilko's employer he's going to claim that Pilko was given residence by this employer knowing that he was in the country illegally and that he had been hired knowing that he was in the country illegally. And as a result of these facts, the construction company would go out of their way to try to avoid working with law enforcement so that their workers did not get deported which I can definitely see his argument here. It's it's one of those they created a dangerous environment by hiring people without proper background checks and continuing to employ them and if given the chance would seemingly avoid working with law enforcement to protect the investment in these workers. However, the judge is going to find that there's not legal grounds to hold the company liable for Pilko's actions. And I guess the best way to describe this would be kind of somebody whose car is, or it is in a car on a bridge during an earthquake is the bridge is designed in such a way that, or I should say, the bridge cannot be designed in such a way to withstand an earthquake. So when the earthquake happens, the company that built the bridge isn't going to be held responsible for it if they did their job correctly. However, if they built the bridge poorly, or if at some point during an inspection the bridge needed to be fixed and the company decided not to do that, and then the bridge fails, it would be more of the fault of the company at that point. So in this case, the company would have had to know that Pilco had a, a potential for violence, either by having some evidence that he had committed a crime in Ecuador before he got hired, or if they had covered up some crime that he committed during the eight months that he was in America that had he been convicted of, he wouldn't have been free to kill Adrian Shelley so absent these or absent evidence of these facts 
the judge's ruling that the company could not have foreseen that Pioco was going to do this to Adrian Shelley, therefore they cannot be held liable. There are some positives coming out of this tragedy. As I mentioned, prior to her death, uh, she had been working on some other uh, films. So she had written a movie called Serious Moonlight. The film was released in 2009, starring Meg Ryan, Kristen Bell, Justin Long, and Timothy Hutton. That film also did very well. And Shelley's husband was able to establish the Adrian Shelley Foundation. And this was a foundation that raised money and award funds in the forms of scholarship grants, funds, and living stipends to female actors, writers, and directors. Adrian Shelley might not have been a huge name in Hollywood or you're just the entertainment business as a whole. She definitely wasn't a what they call the A-level actors or writers or directors. But I think it's important to see that pretty much every project that she was involved in, whether she was whether it was just as her as an actor or whether it was her writing or directing, did so well that it paved the ground for a lot of other female writers and directors. So this foundation was made to kind of further that work that she did. And a great example is in 2009, the foundation awarded a grant to Chloe Zhao for a short film that she was making. And then in, in eight years later, in 2017, Zhao became only the second woman in history to win an Academy Award for Best Director for her film, The Rider, which shook me that we've had how many, 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 many years of Academy Awards and only now two times as a female won the award for best director so it just goes to show how needed something like the adrian shelley foundation is and the fact that this woman who suffered this horrible death her legacy is able to live on to help others is again just speaks volumes about her and a musical version of shelley's uh, movie the waitress opened in 2015 it did so well it was moved to Broadway in 2016 and did a four-year run on Broadway with over 1,500 performances. And Shelley's husband directed a doc documentary about Shelley's life that debuted on HBO in 2021. So even just as recent as a couple years ago, her story gets is, continues to live on. Now, again, I try to find a hero in every case. Uh, I don't think I have to go very far to say that that Shelley herself is the hero, hero here. And this is not based on the fact that she was a victim or that anything she did as a result of her death per se. It was just that how she lived her life. It definitely seemed like Shelley was this woman who, when she saw something, she went for it and put her whole heart and her whole everything into it. And as a result, she made the world a better place. So... You know, my hero for this story is definitely Adrian Shelley. So, you know, this was a little bit different for me. This was a case that I didn't have any knowledge of. I'd never heard of a podcast covering it. Uh, I didn't know the case when it did happen. So this was, and it was a little one that was a little bit harder. It didn't hit the national news at the same level as some of the other cases I've covered recently. So it 
ultimately ended up being about as short as I thought it was going to be, which is totally fine considering uh, some of the episodes I've done recently and the fact that I think this next one is going to be one of my longer episodes as well. But, you know, I'll, I'll try to change it up. Not every episode needs to be an hour long and not every episode has to be one that hit the national news. I'd like to cover some of these lesser known ones from time to time and hopefully people can... You know, whether it's checking out the documentary on HBO or, you know, just watching some of these movies that I mentioned, I definitely plan on doing so. I think just that alone is, is makes worth doing some of these uh, shorter episodes worth the time and worth the listen. So, all right. And before we go, this is actually going to be one of the first times or it will be the first time that I re edit completely a section of the audio for this uh, for this podcast and the reason I'm doing it is as I was editing I realized a couple things first being I kept referring to Adrian Shelley being hung from the towel rack and I realized that she wasn't hung from the towel rack she was hung from the rack that holds like the shower curtain up so it would make more sense just in case people were trying to visualize you know, why somebody needed to climb onto a toilet to hang somebody from a towel rack. They're usually you know, chest level or lower. I just wanted to clarify that and it would actually be the curtain rack that goes with it. The shower curtain slides along, um, which is what she was found hanging from. And just to further clarify the the burglary robbery theft thing i thought as i'm listening to this there's a better way to describe this if i use the same location it might make a little bit more sense so let's take a retail store for example if i walk in in the middle of the day to this retail store the store is open to the public anybody can come and go in and out of this store and i take an item off the shelf and walk out of the store i've committed a theft and that is it. If, however, I walk into that store, take an item off the shelf, and then somehow use force or threat of force, so maybe a clerk tr- uh, tries to stop me and I pull a gun on them or I punch them or whatever it may be, I've now escalated to committing a robbery. In order for it to be only a burglary, that store would have to be closed to the public, so let's say it's the middle of the night, and whether or not the door is unlocked or I have to break in or whatever it may be, it doesn't matter if the building's unoccupied and I don't have permission to be there and I go into that building to commit a crime, usually a theft, I have committed a burglary. So just some odds and ends to clear up as I was listening to the episode as I was going through and doing my editing. So uh, hopefully that clears some things up for everybody and I want to just say thank you for listening Stay tuned for future episodes. As I said, I will get the first international episode out as soon as I can here. I'm very excited to start researching writing it. And uh, feel free to write me at trueblucrimeproductions at gmail.com if you have any uh, suggestions for shows or comments or questions or anything like that. You can find me on Facebook and support me on Patreon if you can. So thanks, guys. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you later. Bye.